Let's look at John chapter 14. John chapter 14. And today is, is not just about a truth claim about who Jesus is. Jesus says these things to comfort his disciples. The disciples are in turmoil of, soul, of their soul. And so Jesus says these things um, to comfort them where they are. So let's look at chapter 14, verse 1. Jesus tells his disciples, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come and will take you to myself. That where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way. The truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Now Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and it will be enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. But the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Or else believe on account of the works themselves. This is the word of the Lord. And we say, thanks be to God for that. Jesus is making an objective truth claim. A very explicit, exclusive truth claim. That He is the only way to the Father. And let's just be honest, that's offensive in our culture today. Is it not? Uh, we live in a postmodern world, a world where truth is deemed to be relative. So you have your truth, and I have my truth, and whatever's good for you is fine, but don't try to push your truth on me. And what that has led to, uh, it leads to different types of theologies like universalism, which is the belief that all people will be saved in the end. That all religions kind of lead to the same place. Um, so uh, Muhammad and the Muslims do, do their thing. And then the Buddhists do their thing. And the Hindus do their thing. And the Christians have their way. And the Jews do their thing. And, and all those ways are climbing the same mountain to the same God. It also leads to pluralism. And, and things where all faiths are basically relatively the same. And Al Mohler says this, that even liberal Christianity has dealt with the claims of Jesus by moving toward universalism. The belief that eventually all persons are saved, or more commonly, inclusivism, which means all world religions point to a common truth that at the end of the day will be discovered to have been Christ. This is even how some 
evangelical Christians alleviate the, the need for foreign missions. If we don't go to the unreached, if we don't go to those people and they never hear about Jesus, then God will look at their life and look at what they believed and He will somehow make a judgment call and say, you know what, they tried the best that they could. They did what they could with the knowledge they have. They're in. Just a tiny problem with that. It is completely inconsistent with the teachings of the New Testament, right? Even authors like Brian McLaren wrote in his book called A Generous Orthodoxy, I don't believe making disciples must equal making adherence to the Christian religion. That's in your Christian bookstores. I don't believe making disciples must equal making adherence to the Christian religion. And we see this even in pop culture, even, uh, uh, I would not call him a pastor, but Pastor Rob Bell wrote a book called Love Wins, which was basically universalism. It was saying that all religions eventually lead to the same place and God, a loving God would never judge people based on their sin. A loving God would never send people to hell. This is why um, people like Joel Osteen, I don't just want to pick on Joel, but on Larry King Live, could not say that Jesus was the only way to the Father. Even Oprah, God bless her, had, had troubles, even in her new age skepticism, could not believe that Jesus was the only way. And yet when we read the Bible and we read what John writes here in John chapter 14, we see that Jesus was very clear about what he believed about himself. So either Jesus is lying or out of his mind, insane, or he's telling the truth. And if you remember, John's purpose in writing the Gospel of John was so that you might believe that Jesus is the Son of God. If you look at verse 1 and verse 11, from beginning to end in this passage, John's purpose is so that you would believe in Jesus today. John, John writes in, verse, in chapter 14, verse 1, Jesus says, Believe in God, believe also in me. Verse 11, Believe me that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me. Jesus is after your faith today. He wants to strengthen your faith. And so, where do we pick up in John 14? Let me give you a little background here. John 14 is, when you read the Gospel of John, it gets really fast up till John 13, at the, at the Last Supper, and everything starts moving in slow motion. The last, the last nine chapters of John pretty much happens over the course of three days. It slows down, and so we get Jesus' teaching, His last words to the disciples, His last words at the Last Supper. This is the night before His crucifixion when Jesus says these words. And so we're going to be comforted here. John is writing and Jesus is comforting his disciples. Keep in mind, Judas has just been dismissed. There were 12 disciples and now there are 11. Judas has walked out of the room in order to sell Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. Judas has been dismissed and the disciples will soon be devastated. In fact, Jesus predicts this. Look back at chapter 13, verse 36. Simon Peter said to him, Lord... Where are you going? Jesus answered him, Where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. And Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, Will you lay down your life for me, Peter? Truly I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three 
times. Even Peter is going to deny Jesus. And so Jesus is speaking here to comfort their hearts. I came across this this excerpt from a, a, a pastor in the 20th century named John Stott. And I want you to listen to what he says about how Jesus spoke about himself. John Stott said, One of the most extraordinary things that Jesus did in his teaching, and you don't even realize it when you're reading the Bible, he did it so unobtrusively. One, one thing Jesus does in his teaching was to set himself apart from everybody else. Have you noticed that when you read the New Testament? For example, by claiming to be the good shepherd who went out into the desert to seek his lost sheep, Jesus was implying that the world was lost and that he wasn't. And that he could seek and save it. In other words, Jesus put himself in a moral category in which he was alone. Everybody else was in darkness, but Jesus was the light of the world. Everybody else was hungry, but Jesus was the bread of life. Everybody else was thirsty, He could quench their thirst with living water. Everybody else was sinful, but he could forgive their sins. And that was so scandalous that people would say in Mark chapter 2, how does this man talk like this? No one can forgive sins but God alone. And if Jesus claims authority to even forgive the repentant, he also claimed authority to judge the unrepentant. One day at the end of history, he would sit on his glorious throne and judge the nations. And all nations would stand before him. And he would separate them from one another as a shepherd separates his sheep from the goats. In other words, Jesus would settle their eternal destiny. And so he made himself the central figure of the day of judgment. And so Stott concludes, these are breathtaking claims. Jesus was by trade a carpenter. From Nazareth, an obscure village on the edge of the Roman Empire. Nobody outside Palestine would have ever heard of Nazareth, and yet Jesus of Nazareth was claiming to be the Savior and Judge of all humankind. That's a bold claim. And so we find Jesus here calling His disciples to trust in Him as He prepares to leave And so, how does he comfort him? Jesus is going to give his disciples five reasons not to be troubled. I'm going to point these out in the text. And it's not just for his disciples. He is speaking to us today. This is not just relevant for Peter. It's not just relevant for the 11 disciples. It is relevant for us today. So here's the first reason Jesus gives for his disciples not to be troubled. Even though Jesus is going to be crucified, the disciples are going to run away. Do not be troubled. Here's the first reason. Jesus says in verses 1 and 2, Do not be troubled, because my Father has many rooms in His house, and each of you will have one. Let's read this together. Chapter 14, verse 1, Jesus says, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? What we find here is that God is preparing a house, not a hotel. His children live with Him in His house. Hotels, you just come and stay a little while and then you leave. This is the Father's house. That implies that we are His children. If He is our Father, and if He has a house with many rooms, we are meant to live with Him. 
And so God's house is large and spacious and he never runs out of room. And so what he tells his disciples, there is a room designed for each and every one of you and even you three rivers if you will trust Jesus. The Father is preparing a place for you. He has room for you. So here's what Jesus is saying. In other words, he's telling his disciples, yes, I'm leaving. And no, you can't come with me now. Yes, you will be scattered this night when they strike the shepherd. And I will do this work alone, Peter. But don't let your sorrow, don't let your fear, don't let your shame produce an unholy turmoil in your soul. Let not your hearts be troubled. Trust me. Trust God. Why? There will be a place for you in my father's house as my father's children forever. So do not be troubled. Second reason. The second reason not to be troubled in verses 2 through 6. Do not be troubled, Jesus says, because I myself am going to make ready the dwelling place with God. Look at verse 2. Jesus says, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? Verse 3. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. Now, I've got to ask a question here. If you're reading your Bible carefully, you may have this question. Jesus says, my father has many rooms, and you have one. But I need to go and prepare a place for you. So here's the question. Is it prepared or not? And the other question is, it's heaven, right? Why does Jesus need to prepare anything? If it's heaven, shouldn't it have no defects? Does heaven need to be repaired? Is there something wrong with my mansion? Or some of the, is the streets of gold yet to be paved? What does it mean that Jesus has to go prepare the way? In case you're wondering, no, heaven is not defective. Jesus is not making repairs. The truth is, Jesus says in Matthew 25, the kingdom of heaven was prepared for us before the foundation of the world. So when Jesus says, I'm going to prepare a place for you, he's not saying, I got to go put on my, my tool belt and go build some mansions, right? That's not what Jesus is talking about. Jesus is not speaking of literal rooms that need to be prepared. He is speaking of the way that must be prepared. Because yes, there's rooms in the Father's house, but there's no way for you to get there yet. That makes sense? Can't get there yet. You know why? Because you're still in your sin. The way has not been prepared. That means sin has not yet been atoned for. The way has not been made. Jesus is the Lamb of God about to be slain for you. He's the Lamb of God who will take away the sins of the world. But right now, your sin is keeping you from heaven. It is keeping you from the Father. I have to prepare the way. The curse of God and His wrath is still unsatisfied, disciples. And Jesus is about to become a curse for us. The way is not yet prepared. Death is yet to be defeated. And Jesus will give His life and take it back again to destroy death. Disciples, the way is there. The, the house is prepared. The rooms are ready. The furniture's been brought in. But you can't get there yet because I have to prepare the way. And if you're one of the disciples, you're probably wondering what Thomas is wondering in verse 4. Jesus said, Lord, we don't know where you're going. 
How can we know the way? Jesus says, you guys know where I'm going. And they didn't know. Thomas says, Jesus, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way if we don't even know where you're going? And this is where Jesus makes the claim in verse 6. This is worth memorizing if you haven't already. Jesus said, I am the way. I am the truth and I am the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. This means a little bit more now when we realize Jesus isn't fixing up our mansions in heaven. He has to go to prepare the way for us because the way is blocked by our sin. It is blocked by the curse. It is blocked by death itself. We cannot get to the Father. Jesus must prepare the way. And so Jesus makes the sixth I am statement in the Gospel of John. That he is the way, the truth, and the life. So what we're going to do very quickly before we move on. I want to look at these three statements and what that means. The way, the truth, and the life. Jesus says, I am the way to the Father. Jesus becomes the way that we get to the Father. Jesus opens the way for us and Jesus is the way. So here's what we see. In a world of many ways to God, Jesus was claiming to be the way. In a world of many different religions, Jesus was saying that he was the way to God. The essence of what Jesus taught is that all people everywhere, including you and me, have been created by God, but we have all turned our own way. It looks different in each of our lives. Each of our stories are different. But if we all gave our testimonies, we all stole bubble gum. We all rebelled against mom and dad. We all did something to turn a separate way. And the Bible calls this sin. And naturally, it separates us from God. And not only does it separate us from God, but it makes us guilty before God. And according to Jesus, this is everyone's biggest problem. We have all, in different ways, sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And so we stand under God's judgment. And Jesus talked about this in John chapter 3, verse 36, that all people are under the wrath of God. The just judgment of God because we turned away from Him. And at the same time, Jesus is saying that He is the way to be saved from that wrath. He's the way to be saved from that judgment. Not just a way, but He is the way. And all who don't believe in Him remain under God's wrath. John 3.36, Jesus said, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. That is a huge statement. Jesus here is fundamentally denouncing the mountain theory of religion that's so common to the world. That it's all like we're at the bottom of the mountain and you can take this path and I can take this path, but in the end, all of us are going to get to the same point at the top of the mountain. This is the idea that all religions are fundamentally the same and equally valid. And so religion becomes a matter of preference or personal taste. And and none of them is more true than the others, right? It's just your preference. What toppings do you like on your pizza? Pepperoni or sausage? It doesn't really matter. It's just your choice. Choose whatever works for you. Jesus here is saying that I am the only way to the Father. But then he says, I'm the truth. I am the way and I am the truth. Jesus is the truth that we hold on to to get to the Father. Jesus confirms the truth and Jesus is the truth. John Piper once wisely wrote this. 
Bad theology dishonors God and hurts people. Churches that sever the root of truth may flourish for a season, but they will wither eventually or turn into something besides a Christian church. If we forsake the truth of Jesus and the truth claims of Christ in order to make other people happy and to satisfy the pluralistic postmodernism idea of truth today, we will cease to be a church. If we stop clinging to the truth of Jesus and His Word, we will wither spiritually and lose our influence for the kingdom. And so amidst a culture that questions truth, Jesus claims to be the truth. And this is where Jesus' claim goes to another level, where He says that He's not only the way, but amidst a culture that questions truth, Jesus claims to be the truth. We are living in a culture that sets aside truth and says faith is a personal matter of taste or tradition. You, I, if you go into most secular colleges, if I was to speak in those, to those colleges, if I were to say this statement, I would get applauded. If I were to say, uh, I am currently searching for the truth, everyone would applaud. But the moment you, st- you say, I am searching for the truth, and I found him, you'll get kicked off campus. It's just the truth, right? We don't want to hear the truth. It's great as long as you're searching for truth, but don't you dare say that you found it and that I'm wrong. The biggest sin today in our culture is to say that someone else is wrong. And yet, the culture says that if you're born in India, you're likely Hindu. If you're born an Arab, you're likely Muslim. If you're born in certain parts of our country, you're likely to be an atheist. If you're born in other parts of our country, you're likely to be a Christian. And so they say that faith is more a matter of tradition than anything else. And in a culture that sees faith as a matter of taste, whatever works for you, or tradition, whatever's most acceptable around you, Jesus says that faith is not a matter of tradition. Faith is a matter of what is really true. John 8, verse 31 and 32, Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And it makes sense when you think about it, right? The idea of relative truth doesn't make sense. All religions cannot be true at the same time. Now, this is obvious. Just think about it. Either God does exist which Christianity would claim, or God doesn't exist, which atheists would claim, or agnostics. Both of those cannot be true. God either exists or He doesn't. This is not a matter of taste or tradition. It's a matter of truth. Either God is or God isn't. And either atheists or Christians, for example, are basing their lives on a lie. We can't both be right. Or think about Islam and Christianity. When it comes to the death of Christ, Christians obviously believe that Jesus died on a cross. Muslims, however, deny that Jesus died on the cross. Now at this point, I'm not not even asking you if you believe it's true or not. The point is, is that both of those belief systems cannot both at the same time be true. Either Jesus did truly die on that cross or He did not. 
And if Jesus didn't die on the cross and he didn't rise from the grave, and if that's the case, then Christians, the Bible and the cross, everything that we believe in, we are wasting our lives and we are to be pitied most among men. But if Jesus did die on that cross and if he did rise from the dead, this would have huge ramifications for every single Muslim and every single person in the world. Last Saturday, our church hosted a Muslim imam of the local Islamic center here. He's a professor at Berry College. His name's Nadim, and he came to speak to our church about the theology of Islam. And it was a great discussion. It was a great way. And one of the members of our church actually asked Nadim if he believed that he worshipped the same God as we do. And his answer was honest, and it's frankly very true. He said, Jesus this is a paraphrase, Jesus is the hang-up for us, right? Jesus is the one that sets apart Islam and Christianity. Either you believe that that crucified man on that cross is God or he's not. And that's what sets those two religions apart. Jesus claimed to be true, the true representation of God. If you want to know what the Father is like, look at the Son, He was speaking the truth about God, that all people had turned away from God, and that the only way to be brought to God was what Jesus would do through the cross. Imagine days, even hours, after Jesus said these words, He went to that cross where He died. And death is the payment for sin, the just judgment of God, do sin. But if Jesus had never sinned, why did He die? The answer for us, the answer for the Muslim, the answer for the Buddhist is the same. Jesus died in the place of sinners. He died for you, He died for me, and He took the judgment that was due us, and He took it upon Himself. So that anyone, anywhere, not just Christians, not just the Muslim, not just the Hindu, no matter how you may have sinned against God, when you put your faith and your hope and your trust in Jesus and what He did for you on that cross, you can be restored to God forever. Not because that's your preference, not because that's your tradition, not because that's how mama and daddy raised you, but because you believe that it is true. And I know that's an astounding thing to believe. Especially when many people in history have made astounding claims. But just because you make an astounding claim doesn't mean that it's true. This is where Jesus goes to a whole different level. Because not only did Jesus claim to die, but he backed up his claim by being raised from the dead. He came back to life. This is why we have to take what Jesus says seriously. Many people have made extravagant claims in history, including many religious teachers. But in all of their lives, death was the tragic end of all of their stories. Whether it was Muhammad who died at the age of 62, Confucius died at 72, the Buddha died at 80 years old, or Moses dying at 120 years old. All of these leaders' deaths marked the end of their stories. And yet Jesus' death does not mark the end of his story, but actually the beginning of his story because he was raised from the dead, justifying and validating every claim that he made to be the way to the Father. Jesus is the way. Jesus is the truth. But Jesus is also the life. Jesus is the eternal life we will enjoy when we get to the Father. Jesus purchases life and Jesus is The life. Jesus' death marks not the end, but the beginning of his story. For he claimed not just to be the way, 
and the truth. But to all who long for peace and joy in this life, Jesus claims to be the life. And three days after he died, on his own accord, he was alive. This makes Jesus utterly unique in the history of the world. Who else, who else has conquered death? Which is why Jesus was always talking about life. And eternal life at that. He would meet people at different points in their lives. And he would find them with the same longings that you and I have. People have the same desires. Longings for peace. Longing for comfort. For meaning. For joy. And for life to the full. And so he says to a woman at the well who had numerous husbands. And yet found herself alone. He said, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. He says to a crowd of hungry people, I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. He says to a group of people walking in darkness around them, I am the light of the world, and whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. He says to people whose joy and peace were constantly being taken away from them in this world, the thief comes to steal and to kill and destroy. But I have come that you may have life, an abundant life. In other words, Jesus is saying, I go to prepare a place for you. And as I go, I become the way that you get there. I am the truth that you hold on to to get there. I am the life, the eternal life that you will enjoy when you do get there. And when I say I go to prepare a place for you, I mean I am opening the way. I am the way. I confirm the truth and I am the truth. I purchase the life. I am the life. But that's not all that he means when he says that he goes to prepare a place for you. He actually means something else. There's a third argument for why we should trust Jesus. Jesus says things aren't ready yet. I have to prepare the way. But there's something else he says here in verse 3. Third reason not to be troubled. Do not be troubled because I myself will be your dwelling and I'll get you there. Won't you look at verse 3? mentioned this in the membership class today. I want you to tell me where Jesus talks about heaven here. Ready? I want you to look for it. Tell me if you find it. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself. That where I am, you may be also. Jesus does not say that heaven is a place, although I believe that it is. For Jesus... Heaven is where Jesus is. If you go to heaven and all your friends are there and you get a big mansion with streets of gold and Jesus isn't there, that's not heaven. Jesus says, I will come again and I will receive you to myself. And so Jesus is shifting the focus of heaven from a place to a person. I want you to notice this passage does not say Jesus will take us to heaven. Although it may be implied, the essence of heaven is the presence of Jesus. Heaven is where Jesus is. And so the second coming of Christ is not so much about us returning to heaven, but it is about reunion with Jesus. 
Think about it. When you look forward to Jesus coming back, what are you looking forward to? Are you looking forward just to going to heaven? Or are you looking forward to Jesus coming back in the flesh? We look forward to Christ coming. And so let's be careful, believers, that we don't put so much emphasis on heaven that we forget about the one who gets us there and who makes it heaven in the first place. Jesus is saying, I am your room in my Father's house. I am the room. I'm the one that you hide in. It's the room that you're going to. Isn't, it's not about a building. It's not about a mansion. It's not about streets of gold. I am the room that you get to dwell in, in the presence of God. I am not yet prepared to receive you there. I must die. I must rise. I must be glorified. I must intercede for you. And when I have done that, then I'll be ready. And I will come and I will take you to myself. All right, so we read this. Jesus is comforting his disciples. And Jesus is saying, don't worry guys, it's going to get really hard. But you're going to go to heaven one day. You're going to be with me and I'm preparing a room for you. And I'm going to get you there myself. Maybe you're thinking this. If I'm one of the disciples, I'm thinking, wow, that's great, Jesus. I get to go to heaven one day. But what about now? Jesus, do you have a word for me now? I don't just need to be comforted with future heaven. Future promises are comforting, but what about comfort for, for present situations? You might feel at this point, these comforts are wonderful, but they're so far away. I'm not ready. I'm ready to go to heaven, but I don't want to go yet, right? I don't want to just die. I want to live too. And what may be causing that turmoil in your own soul this morning is that you don't know what's best for your children. Maybe your marriage is fragile today or unaffectionate. Your health is failing. You can't stand your job, so you're lonely. If Jesus doesn't want my heart troubled now, is there any encouragement that's for my faith that's a little closer than the second coming? Is there anything for me now? I need Jesus to give me something now. And so here's the fourth argument out of five for why we should not be troubled. Here's what Jesus gives us. Verses 7 to 11, Jesus is going to say, Do not be troubled because the Father who has a place for you in His eternal presence is with you now. Let's read verses 7. To 11, Jesus said, if you had known me, you would have known my father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip doesn't understand. He says, Lord, show us the father and it'll be enough for us. Just show us that the father's with us now. We'll be, we'll be good. This had to have been offensive and hurtful to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still don't know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I don't speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does His works. Believe in me. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. What is Jesus doing? He is claiming equality with God. I am equal with the Father. So don't, don't let anybody tell you that Jesus never claimed to be God. Yes, He does. If you've seen the Father, you've seen me. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. If you want to know what the Father is like, look at me. 
We want to see the Father now. That's what Philip says. Jesus, don't just wait. We want to see the Father now. Show Him to us. We need to be comforted. That'll be enough. That'll be sufficient. It's interesting that the word that Philip uses here when he says, show us the Father and that'll be enough. It's actually the word sufficient. It'll be sufficient. It's the same word that Paul uses to the Corinthians when he says, my grace is sufficient for you. In these verses, verses 7 to 11, Jesus says six times that He and the Father are one. His presence is the Father's presence. Guys, don't worry. I'm here with you now. You don't just need future comfort. I will be your comfort now. In verse 7, if you had known me, you would have known my Father also. Verse 7, second half. From now on, you know Him and have seen Him. Verse 9, have I been with you so long and you don't know me, Philip? Second half of verse 9, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Verse 10, do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? Verse 11, I am in the Father and the Father is in me. That should be enough. But there's one more problem. Even Jesus is leaving. What about when Jesus leaves? Is there any comfort then for the disciples? This comes a little bit later in the text. This is the last one. What, I, what happens when Jesus leaves? Is there any comfort for us today? And Jesus says, Do not be troubled because I will be with you always, not just at my return. I want you to look at verse 16. John chapter 14, verse 16. Jesus promises to be with his disciples forever. Verse 16, he says, And I will ask the Father... And he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. After Jesus leaves, he continues to be with us through his Holy Spirit. You know what that means? That means at Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came, Jesus came. Jesus was coming back in the presence of the Holy Spirit. I want you to hear Romans chapter 8, verses 9 and 10. You are not in the flesh, but you are in the Spirit. If in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. In that verse, in, the, in one verse, Paul uses Spirit of God and Spirit of Christ in the same sentence. The Spirit of God is the Spirit of Christ. The, that Spirit of God dwells in you this morning if you are a believer. If you've repented of your sin, if you put your faith in Jesus, you have the presence of Christ dwelling with you. This is not the second coming. As glorious as that will be, this is right now, he has gone away physically, precisely so that he can be near to all of his own, not just the eleven. He has not left you as orphans through rivers. He has come to you. He is right now more interested in and more caring about your parenting and your marriage and your singleness and your failing health and your job and your loneliness than you could ever imagine. He cares about you. He is present with you. He did not come to us as an observer. He came to us as the helper. He's your helper today.
He is the presence of God dwelling in you and with you. So what does that mean for us? I was thinking about this. What does it really mean if Jesus is the only way? First of all, if Jesus is the only way, this should give us gospel clarity. We should not walk out of here confused about what Jesus said about himself. There is no one else for you to turn to today who has words of eternal life. There is one mediator between God and man, and it is the man, Christ Jesus. So trust in him. Put your faith in him. Believe in him. Let your faith be encouraged today as you look to Jesus and Jesus alone. I shared this a little bit today um, in our membership class. There is a problem today with Christians sharing their testimonies when your testimony is more about you than it is about Jesus, then it's not a Christian testimony. As you share your Christian testimony, talk more about what Jesus did objectively for you and who he is more than just what you did. Don't just talk about how, well, I was struggling and I was going through a hard time, but God came to me and, and helped me through. That's not the gospel. The gospel is that I could do nothing for myself and that Jesus, in His love for me, made a way for me in His death and resurrection and I had put my faith in Him and Him alone to save me from the wrath to come. That is a Christian testimony that brings great gospel clarity to the issue. I'm not trusting anybody else. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and His righteousness. So... If Jesus is the only way, that gives us gospel clarity, but it should give us another thing. If Jesus is the only way, this should give us global urgency. If Jesus is the only way, that means that there are over 3 billion people on our planet today who have no access whatsoever to that gospel. None. They've never heard the name of Jesus, much less heard the gospel. They don't have the scripture in their own language. They don't have anyone in their tribe, anyone in their culture, no one who speaks their language that can tell them about Jesus. And they will live their life, they will be born, they will live and they will go their entire life and die and die in their sin and never hear the life-giving gospel of Jesus Christ. And Paul says they will not believe if they never hear about Him. And how can they hear if no one is preaching? This is why, church, we want to be a global church. A church that is engaging the nations. This is why we put so much emphasis on reaching the unreached people groups because we believe that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And if they never hear about Him, they will perish. This is why we want to have global urgency and pray that God would raise up people to go to the nations this is why we give our money and our time and our efforts for people to hear the gospel. This is why we support those people. We're going to have a guy come possibly in the next couple of weeks. I don't even want to say his name online because it's being recorded for his own protection. It's someone that we support through our church and he's going to get to share about what is going on in our global work. It's important about what we do here at Three Rivers. If we believe Jesus is the only way, then we need to take his message to those who've never heard. I'll finish with this. The way is narrow, but the invitation is wide and broad. The gospel offer for salvation is available to all. Instead of being exclusive here, Christianity is actually very inclusive in what it offers. 
Everyone is welcome to come to Jesus. It does not matter who they are or what they have done. The Bible tells us that whoever believes in Him will not perish. Whether they're Jew or Hindu or Sikh or Greek or Canadian or African or athlete or entrepreneur or lawyer or academic, the offer is there for everyone. Come to Jesus. Come to the waters and drink freely. Come. Whoever wants to come, come and find life in Him. I finish with this quote by Al Mohler. If all we need is a teacher of enlightenment, then Buddha will do. If all we need is a collection of gods for every occasion and every need and every hope, then Hinduism will do. If all we need is a tribal deity, then any tribal deity will do. If all we need is a lawgiver, Moses will do. If all we need is a set of rules and a way of devotion, then Muhammad or Joseph Smith will do. If all we need is inspiration and insight into the sovereign self, for crying out loud, Oprah will do. But if we need a Savior, only Jesus will do. And what a Savior He is. Let's pray together. Father, we confess today that Jesus is the way and the truth and the life. And there is no way to you, the Father, except through Him. Father, we we believe today that Jesus has prepared that way. That through His life and through His death and through His resurrection, He has made a way for us to come. And He's not just the way. We believe that He's the room when we get there. He is the truth that sets us free. He is the eternal life that we will enjoy forever. So Father, would you increase the faith of your people today at Three Rivers. Father, would you let not their hearts be troubled. But let them find their hope and their trust in Christ today. Father, as we get ready to worship and sing. We have something that the nations need. So would you implant the desire in us to use our resources and our time and, Lord, even even our own money to go to, to tell people about Christ. Would you awaken in us a global urgency with gospel clarity? Father, I pray that Jesus today would be glorified as we sing and as we respond to him. Father, if there's someone not a Christian here today, I pray that the truth claims of Jesus would be made evident, that they would be led to repentance and faith in him today and find life. Father, for us who are in the faith, help us to worship, help us to glorify you in singing now as we declare that Jesus is the way. In Jesus' name, amen.